Chapter 10, Parts 1 and 2 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 10, Parts 1 and 2. Chapter 10. The World Under the War. Part 1. Bert spent two more days upon Goat Island and finished all his provisions except the cigarettes and mineral water before he brought himself to try the Asiatic flying machine. Even at last he did not so much go off upon it as get carried off. It had taken only an hour or so to substitute wing stays from the second flying machine and to replace the nuts he had himself removed. The engine was in working order, and differed only very simply and obviously from that of a contemporary motor bicycle. The rest of the time was taken up by a vast musing and delaying and hesitation. Chiefly, he saw himself splashing into the rapids and whirling down them to the fall, clutching and drowning. But also, he had a vision of being hopelessly in the air, going fast and unable to ground. His mind was too concentrated upon the business of flying for him to think very much of what might happen to an indefinite-spirited cockney without credential who arrived on an Asiatic flying machine amidst the war-infuriated population beyond. He still had a lingering solicitude for the bird-faced officer. He had a haunting fancy he might be lying disabled or badly smashed in some way in some nook or cranny of the island, and it was only after a most exhaustive search that he abandoned that distressing idea. If I found him, he reasoned the while, what could I do with him? You can't blow a chap's brains out when he's down, and I don't see ow else I can help him. Then the kitten bothered his highly developed sense of social responsibility. If I leave her, she'll starve. Ought to catch mice for herself. Are there mice? Birds? She's too young. She's like me. She's a bit too civilized. Finally, he stuck her in his side pocket, and she became greatly interested in the memories of corned beef she found there. With her in his pocket, he seated himself in the saddle of the flying machine big, clumsy thing it was, and not a bit like a bicycle. Still, the working of it was fairly plain. You set the engine going. So. Kicked yourself up until the wheel was vertical. So. Engaged the gyroscope. So. And then, then, you just pulled up this lever. Rather stiff it was, but suddenly it came over. The big curved wings on either side flapped disconcertingly, flapped again, click-clock, click-clock, clitter-clock. Stop! The thing was heading for the water. Its wheel was in the water. Bert groaned from his heart and struggled to restore the lever to its first position. Click-clock, clitter-clock. He was rising. The machine was lifting its dripping wheel out of the eddies, and he was going up. There was no stopping now, no good in stopping now. In another moment, Bert, clutching and convulsive and rigid, with staring eyes and a face pale as death, was flapping up above the rapids, jerking to every jerk of the wings, and rising, rising. 
There was no comparison in dignity and comfort between a flying machine and a balloon. Except in its moments of descent, the balloon was a vehicle of faultless urbanity. This was a buck-jumping mule, a mule that jumped up and never came down again. Click, clock, click, clock. With each beat of the strangely shaped wings it jumped Bert upward and caught him neatly again half a second later on the saddle. And while in ballooning there is no wind, since the balloon is part of the wind, flying is a wild perpetual creation of and plunging into wind. It was a wind that above all things sought to blind him, to force him to close his eyes. It occurred to him presently to twist his knees and legs inward and grip with them, or surely he would have been bumped into two clumsy halves. And he was going up, a hundred yards high, two hundred, three hundred, over the streaming, frothing wilderness of water below, up, up, up. That was all right. But how presently would one go horizontally? He tried to think if these things did go horizontally. No, they flapped up and then they soared down. For a time he would keep on flapping up. Tears streamed from his eyes. He wiped them with one temerariously disengaged hand. Was it better to risk a fall over land or over water? Such water! He was flapping up above the upper rapids towards Buffalo. It was at any rate a comfort that the falls and the wild swirl of waters below them were behind him. He was flying up straight. That he could see. How did one turn? He was presently almost cool, and his eyes got more used to the rush of air, but he was getting very high. Very high. He tilted his head forwards and surveyed the country, blinking. He could see all over Buffalo, a place with three great blackened scars of ruin, and hills and stretches beyond he wondered if he was half a mile high or more there were some people among some houses near a railway station between niagara and buffalo and then more people they went like ants busily in and out of the houses he saw two motor cars gliding along the road towards niagara city then far away in the south he saw a great asiatic airship going eastward "'Oh, Gord!' he said, and became earnest in his ineffectual attempts to alter his direction. But that airship took no notice of him, and he continued to ascend convulsively. The world got more and more extensive and map-like. Click, clock, clitter, clock. Above him, and very near to him now, was a hazy stratum of cloud. He determined to disengage the wing-clutch. He did so. The lever resisted his strength for a time, then over it came, and instantly the tail of the machine cocked up and the wings became rigidly spread. Instantly everything was swift and smooth and silent. He was gliding rapidly down the air against a wild gale of wind, his eyes three-quarters shut. A little lever that had hitherto been obdurate now confessed itself mobile. He turned it over gently to the right, and whirroo! The left wing had in some mysterious way given at its edge, and he was sweeping round and downward in an immense right-handed spiral. For some moments he experienced all the helpless sensations of catastrophe. He restored the lever to its middle position with some difficulty, and the wings were equalized again. He turned it to the left, and had a sensation of being spun round backwards. Too much! he gasped. 
he discovered that he was rushing down at a headlong pace towards a railway line and some factory buildings. They appeared to be tearing up to him to devour him. He must have dropped all that height. For a moment he had the ineffectual sensations of one whose bicycle bolts downhill. The ground had almost taken him by surprise. Air! he cried, and then, with a violent effort of all his being, he got the beating engine at work again and set the wings flapping. He swooped down and up and resumed his quivering and pulsating ascent of the air. He went high again until he had a wide view of the pleasant upland country of western New York State, and then made a long coast down, and so up again, and then a coast. Then, as he came swooping a quarter of a mile above a village, he saw people running about, running away, evidently in relation to his hawk-like passage. He got an idea that he had been shot at. Up, he said, and attacked that lever again. It came over with remarkable docility, and suddenly the wings seemed to give way in the middle. But the engine was still. It had stopped. He flung the lever back rather by instinct than design. What to do? Much happened in a few seconds, but also his mind was quick. He thought very quickly. He couldn't get up again. He was gliding down the air. He would have to hit something. He was traveling at the rate of perhaps thirty miles an hour down. Down. That plantation of larches looked the softest thing. Mossy almost. Could he get it? He gave himself to the steering. Round to the right? Left. Swirroo! Crackle! He was gliding over the tops of the trees, plowing through them, tumbling into a cloud of green sharp leaves and black twigs. There was a sudden snapping, and he fell off the saddle forward, a thud and a crashing of branches. Some twigs hit him smartly in the face. He was between a tree stem and the saddle, with his leg over the steering lever, and, so far as he could realize, not hurt. He tried to alter his position and free his leg, and found himself slipping and dropping through branches with everything giving way beneath him. He clutched and found himself in the lower branches of a tree beneath the flying machine. The air was full of a pleasant, resinous smell. He stared for a moment motionless, and then, very carefully, clambered down branch by branch to the soft, needle-covered ground below. Good business, he said, looking up at the bent and tilted kite wings above. I dropped soft. He rubbed his chin with his hand and meditated. Blowed if I don't think I'm a rather lucky fellow, he said, surveying the pleasant sun-bespattered ground under the trees. Then he became aware of a violent tumult at his side. Lord, he said, you must be off smothered, and extracted the kitten from his pocket handkerchief and pocket. She was twisted and crumpled and extremely glad to see the light again. Her little tongue peeped between her teeth. He put her down, and she ran a dozen paces, and shook herself, and stretched, and sat up, and began to wash. Next, he said, looking about him, and then, with a gesture of vexation, Dash it! I ought to have brought that gun! He had rested it against a tree when he had seated himself in the flying machine saddle. He was puzzled for a time by the immense peacefulness in the quality of the world, and then he perceived that the roar of the cataract was no longer in his ears. Part 2 
He had no very clear idea of what sort of people he might come upon in this country. It was, he knew, America. Americans, he had always understood, were the citizens of a great and powerful nation, dry and humorous in their manner, addicted to the use of the bowie knife and revolver, and in the habit of talking through the nose like Norfolkshire, and saying allow, and reckon, and calculate, after the manner of the people who live on the new forest side of Hampshire. Also, they were very rich had rocking-chairs, and put their feet at unusual altitudes, and they chewed tobacco, gum, and other substances with untiring industry. Commingled with them were cowboys, red Indians, and comic, respectful niggers. This he had learnt from the fiction in his public library. Beyond that, he had learnt very little. He was not surprised, therefore, when he met armed men. He decided to abandon the shattered flying machine. He wandered through the trees for some time, and then struck a road that seemed to his urban English eyes to be remarkably wide, but not properly made. Neither hedge, nor ditch, nor curbed distinctive footpath separated it from the woods, and it went in that long, easy curve which distinguishes the tracks of an open continent. Ahead, he saw a man carrying a gun under his arm a man in a soft black hat, a blue blouse and black trousers, and with a broad, round, fat face, quite innocent of goatee. This person regarded him askance, and heard him speak with a start. "'Can you tell me whereabouts I am at all?' asked Bert. The man regarded him, and more particularly his rubber boots, with sinister suspicion. Then he replied in a strange, outlandish tongue that was, as a matter of fact, check. He ended suddenly at the sight of Bert's blank face with, Don't speak English. Oh, said Bert. He reflected gravely for a moment, and then went his way. Thanks, he said as an afterthought. The man regarded his back for a moment, was struck with an idea, began an abortive gesture, sighed, gave it up, and went on also with a depressed countenance. Presently Bert came to a big wooden house standing casually among the trees. It looked a bleak bare box of a house to him. No creeper grew on it. No hedge, nor wall, nor fence parted it off from the woods about it. He stopped before the steps that led up to the door, perhaps thirty yards away. The place seemed deserted. He would have gone up to the door and rapped, but suddenly a big black dog appeared at the side and regarded him. It was a huge, heavy-jawed dog of some unfamiliar breed, and it wore a spike-studded collar. It did not bark nor reproach him. It just bristled quietly and emitted a single sound like a short, deep cough. Bert hesitated and went on. He stopped thirty paces away and stood peering about him among the trees. "'If I haven't been and left that kitty,' he said. Acute sorrow wrenched him for a time. The black dog came through the trees to get a better look at him, and coughed that well-bred cough again. Bert resumed the road. "'She'll do all right,' he said. "'She'll catch things.' "'She'll do all right,' he said presently, without conviction. But if it had not been for the black dog, he would have gone back.' When he was out of sight of the house and the black dog, he went into the woods on the other side of the way, and emerged after an interval, trimming a very tolerable cudgel with his pocket-knife. 
Presently, he saw an attractive-looking rock by the track, and picked it up and put it in his pocket. Then he came to three or four houses, wooden like the last, each with an ill-painted white veranda, that was his name for it, and all standing in the same casual way upon the ground. Behind, through the woods, he saw pigsties and a rooting black sow leading a brisk, adventurous family. A wild-looking woman with slow black eyes and disheveled black hair sat upon the steps of one of the houses nursing a baby. But at the sight of Bert she got up and went inside, and he heard her bolting the door. Then a boy appeared among the pigsties, but he would not understand Bert's hail. "'I suppose it is America,' said Bert. The houses became more frequent down the road, and he passed two other extremely wild and dirty-looking men without addressing them. One carried a gun and the other a hatchet, and they scrutinized him and his cudgel scornfully. Then he struck a crossroad with a monorail at its side, and there was a notice-board at the corner with, Wait here for the cars. That's all right, anyhow, said Bert. Wonder how long I should have to wait. It occurred to him that in the present disturbed state of the country the service might be interrupted, and as there seemed more houses to the right than the left, he turned to the right. He passed an old negro. Allo, said Bert. Good morning. Good day, sir, said the old negro, in a voice of almost incredible richness. What's the name of this place? asked Bert. Tanuda, sir, said the negro. "'Thanks,' said Bert. "'Thank you, sir,' said the negro, overwhelmingly. Bert came to houses of the same detached, unwalled wooden type, but adorned now with enameled advertisements, partly in English and partly in Esperanto. Then he came to what he concluded was a grocer's shop. It was the first house that professed the hospitality of an open door, and from within came a strangely familiar sound. "'Gah!' he said, searching in his pockets. "'Why, I haven't wanted money for three weeks. "'I wonder if I grub at most of it. "'Ah!' He produced a handful of coins and regarded it. Three pennies, sixpence, and a shilling. "'That's all right,' he said, forgetting a very obvious consideration. He approached the door, and as he did so, a compactly built, grey-faced man in shirt-sleeves appeared in it, and scrutinized him and his cudgel. "'Mornin,' said Bert. "'Can I get anything to eat or drink in this shop?' The man in the door replied, "'Thank heaven,' in clear, good American. "'This, sir, is not a shop. It is a store.' "'Oh,' said Bert. And then, well, can I get anything to eat? You can, said the American, in a tone of confident encouragement, and led the way inside. The shop seemed to him, by his Bunhill standards, extremely roomy, well-lit and unencumbered. There was a long counter to the left of him, with drawers and miscellaneous commodities ranged behind it, a number of chairs, several tables, and two spittoons to the right, various barrels, cheeses and bacon up the vista, and beyond a large archway leading to more space. A little group of men was assembled round one of the tables, and a woman of perhaps five and thirty leant with her elbows on the counter. All the men were armed with rifles, and the barrel of a gun peeped above the counter. 
They were all listening idly, inattentively, to a cheap, metallic-toned gramophone that occupied a table near at hand. From its brazen throat came words that gave Bert a qualm of homesickness. That brought back in his memory a sunlit beach, a group of children, red-painted bicycles, grub, and an approaching balloon. Ting-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-tang. What price hairpins now? A heavy-necked man in a straw hat, who was chewing something, stopped the machine with a touch, and they all turned their eyes on Bert. And all their eyes were tired eyes. "'Can we give this gentleman anything to eat, mother? Or can we not?' said the proprietor. "'He can have what he likes,' said the woman at the counter, without moving. "'Right up from a cracker to a square meal.' She struggled with a yawn, after the manner of one who has been up all night. "'I want a meal,' said Bert, "'but I haven't very much money. "'I don't want to give more'n a shillin'.' "'More'n a what?' said the proprietor sharply. "'More'n a shillin,' said Bert, "'with a sudden disagreeable realization coming into his mind. "'Yes,' said the proprietor, "'startled for a moment from his courtly bearing. "'But what in hell is a shilling?' "'He means a quarter,' said a wise-looking, "'lank young man in riding gaiters. Bert, trying to conceal his consternation, produced a coin. "'That's a shilling,' he said. "'He calls a store a shop,' said the proprietor, "'and he wants a meal for a shilling. "'May I ask you, sir, what part of America you hail from?' Bert replaced the shilling in his pocket as he spoke. "'Niagara,' he said. "'And when did you leave Niagara?' "'About an hour ago.' Well, said the proprietor, and turned with a puzzled smile to the others. Well. They asked various questions simultaneously. Bert selected one or two for reply. You see, he said, I've been with the German air fleet. I got caught up by them, sort of by accident, and brought over here. From England? Yes, from England, way of Germany. I was in a great battle with them Asiatics, and I got left on a little island between the falls. Goat Island? I don't know what it was called. But anyhow, I found a flying machine and made a sort of fly with it and got here. Two men stood up with incredulous eyes on him. Where's the flying machine? they asked. Outside? It's back in the woods here, about half a mile away. Is it good? said a thick-lipped man with a scar. I come down rather a smash. Everybody got up and stood about him and talked confusingly. They wanted him to take them to the flying machine at once. Look here, said Bert. I'll show you, only I haven't had anything to eat since yesterday, except mineral water. A gaunt, soldierly-looking young man with long, lean legs and riding gaiters and a bandolier, who had hitherto not spoken, intervened now on his behalf in a note of confident authority. "'That's all right,' he said. "'Give him a feed, Mr. Logan, from me. I want to hear more of that story of his. We'll see his machine afterwards. If you ask me, I should say it's a remarkably interesting accident had dropped this gentleman here.' I guess we requisition that flying machine, if we find it, for local defense. End of chapter 10, parts 1 and 2. Recording by William Tomko.